coming up. I think the question that stands out in my mind is what possessed Joseph D'Angelo to think that he could get away with it? And by all accounts, he did for a very long period of time. For Vault Studios, I'm Reed Redmond. You're listening to The Daily Crime. For decades, the man who would eventually become known as the Golden State Killer eluded investigators, moving around California and changing his M.O. The public got a view of it, but when you live at 50, 40, 50, 60 hours a week, uh, it, you, you knew a lot more. But today, the Golden State Killer is behind bars. I have a full second half of my life ahead of me. You've got what you got. Mike Duffy, anchor and reporter with ABC10 in Sacramento, joins us to pick up where we left off with Madison Wade yesterday talking about the Golden State Killer. And Mike, I wanted to start with this window of over 30 years where the Golden State Killer seemingly stops killing. Tell me, what did the investigation look like during that window of time? Well, Reed, it was one of those instances that you really can't compare to anything else in American history. So, these crimes happened from 1974 to 1986, and then they just stopped. And just as scary as those crimes were for a number of years, it was almost just as horrifying not to have anything, no sign, no clue. Mm. And this killer remained at large for at least 30 years after that point in time. Now, one thing that we could say is that this case went cold. But another thing that is also true is that it never really stopped being investigated. Unlike most crimes where there's no evidence, uh, there's just no leads, eventually the investigators give up. But it seems that at least one investigator at all times was paying close attention, trying to find any evidence that he possibly could, even though the case had gone cold. And for much of this time, that investigator would have been Paul Holes, right? <laughs> yeah, I'd say he was the all-star throughout this investigation. But keep in mind, Paul Holes didn't start his investigations until 1996, which is about 10 years after the case went cold. Interestingly, Paul Holes was the cold case investigator in Contra Costa County. That's not the county where the majority of these crimes took place. That would be Sacramento County. But at the same time, there were a series of rapes there, and he, it was his job to try to figure out who done it. So DNA evidence wasn't even used by law enforcement until the late 80s. And if you remember, there was a blockbuster case that happened in the mid-90s, and that was the O.J. Simpson trial. It was really the first time the mainstream had really heard about DNA evidence, and it was used extensively in that trial. But you might also remember that the jury didn't know what to make of that DNA evidence. They didn't realize how precise it was. They didn't realize how it really pinpointed single suspects out. And ultimately, we know what happened. OJ got off scot-free. So we're at that point in time when Paul Holes really picks up his investigation and DNA evidence is kind of new. It's kind of fresh and they still don't have a real good idea of how to use it. Jumping ahead a couple decades, it's in 2016, the FBI launches a big national publicity campaign to try to bring in new leads about the Golden State Killer. Bring us up to that point from the 1990s when Paul Holes gets involved and DNA evidence is just coming onto the scene. All right, so let me pick up kind of that DNA trail that I kind of left off there. So in 1997, they had cobbled together 
um, a semi-DNA profile of who the suspect could be. They had a potential guy, but it was a lot like fingerprinting at that time. So you would have to know who the suspect could be in order to match that fingerprint or that DNA profile with that person. And they just couldn't do it at that time. But in 2001, that's when they were finally able to link all these rapes and murders in Northern California with these murders and rapes that were happening in Southern California. So this was a real big key. But then after that point in time, nothing. Well, what else starts to happen in this interim period is the birth of the internet. Really, people start to be connected in ways that they never were before. And so you get this rise of these armchair sleuths and these legal eagles and people who really are invested in true crime stories. They're putting their two cents and they're connecting dots that maybe law enforcement hadn't before. And in 2016, the FBI really makes an effort to capitalize on this. And they announce a $50,000 reward in June of 2016 as part of their campaign to help identify who that Golden State killer is. Um, their campaign is complete with a new webpage. Uh, they have social media and radio PSAs. And what they're trying to do is reach out to those people who might not have thought that the killer could be living maybe in their own backyard, maybe it was a neighbor. Uh, they wanted people to look at these um, individuals with fresh eyes. And they knew that the suspect had taken tokens uh, during his crime spree. So they even asked people to, you know, pay attention to, did you see a collection of coins or jewelry? Because that was something that could potentially identify the suspect. Three years ago, then, something finally gives and investigators are finally able to break this case open that's been haunting them for over four decades. What was this breakthrough? Well, it's um, really because of the advent of a new phrase that we're all fairly familiar with now, which is genetic genealogy. And this is the exact same thing that you or your mother might use to find out if you have distant relatives, you know, from another country that you never knew about. Mm -hmm. um, it's that same technology that's used by Ancestry and 23andMe and all of these other DNA websites um, that helps you figure out your own past. Well, these websites have a big database of other people who have also submitted their DNA. And what it allows you to do is kind of compare profiles as they get more people, it gets more precise, and you can really find out um, close relatives. In fact, these websites will tell you like, hey, you have a second cousin that has also submitted their profile. So it's not just these companies that collect profiles. The FBI has been collecting information on people in their system for a long period of time. And what it allows the FBI to do is if they get some DNA evidence, they can look in their profile and see if that person has done anything in the past. But if that person hasn't committed a crime, they're not going to be in that database. Right. And that kind of old school FBI genetic database is probably something a lot of our listeners are familiar with. That'd be CODIS, right? Yes. that The, the one that you're talking about, yeah, for the the FBI. But there's also another one. It's an open source platform and it's called GEDmatch. And GEDmatch is where people willingly submit their profiles in order to mostly look for their ancestors to, to do normal run-of-the-mill genealogy type searches. But this is when law enforcement starts to find that it could be a useful tool for them to identify suspects that have long gone undiscovered. 
Can you explain then a little bit how using genetic genealogy to find a suspect is different from throwing a profile into a DNA database like CODIS and hoping for a match? I understand it's more complex and certainly a more labor-intensive approach. Yeah, for sure. And there's a short version of the story and a long version of the story. Let me let me just give you the short version first. This is what we got from detectives right after the Golden State Killer was finally identified. So what they said was what happened is they created a genetic profile for their suspect, the presumable Golden State Killer, and they got that DNA from a rape kit in Ventura County years prior. So they created a profile, they submitted it to they said Jedmatch at the time, and it was able to identify an individual that was closely related to the Golden State Killer. They don't know the identity at this time, but they know that he's closely related. <clears throat> so what investigators do at that point in time is they create a family tree. And this is done very much the same way as genealogy has been done for hundreds of years. You essentially have one person, you can find out who their siblings are, who their grandparents are, who their extended relatives, and that tree becomes bigger and bigger as you go further and further out. And what investigators had to do is use things that investigators have used for a long time, like newspaper articles or birth registries, marriage registries, those sorts of documents, and they could compile their own family tree and see who that person was related to. Now, can I give you the longer version? Absolutely. So this is a little ethically questionable, and it will be something that will be debated for years to come. In fact, it's already being legislated in some states right now. So these are supposed to be private databases where people upload their genetic information because they want to know where they're from and who their relatives might be. That's not supposed to be used for law enforcement. Well, that's at least one of the arguments. Hmm. Law enforcement has their own, like I said, this DNA database and the other one that you mentioned. And there's also the open source platform known as GEDmatch. But what we learned later is that investigators created a profile on a private database and then used that private database to see if their DNA sample com uh, matched. Let me put it that way. They used that private database to see if it matched anyone on that platform. And what they found is a relative but not a close relative, so maybe like a third cousin. Then they took that profile and tried it on another private DNA registry, and they got a close match, presumably a second cousin at this point in time. And that's, you know, that's your cousin's child. So that's pretty closely related to their suspect at this point in time. And how do they go from there then to actually arresting the person we now know to be the Golden State Killer, Joseph James D'Angelo? Well, I'm going to oversimplify it a little bit because it does get kind of tedious. But like I said, they would build out this family tree. So they have essentially a second cousin identified. From there, you can build out relatives closely related to this potential suspect. And that narrows it down to a pool of, let's say, 50 people at this point in time. Now, you can narrow it down further because it matters where that suspect was living at that time, where the crimes were committed, also the age that that suspect would relatively have been, and also his race, um, his other identifying features. And one of the things that a lot of the victims pointed out was that this suspect had blue eyes. Well, they had a list of suspects, but only so many had blue eyes. And from there... They tried to get DNA samples from the people that they thought was most likely. 
Now the obvious question, how did they get that DNA sample from D'Angelo? Because I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that if they just asked him for it, he would have said no. So this one is, um, I would say, I would call this a little bit of old-fashioned police work. What they wanted to do was to find um, a little piece of something that had the suspect's DNA. So they were suspicious that Joseph D'Angelo was their man. And the only way that they could get DNA evidence was to stake out his place and actually wait for him to do something that might leave DNA. So there's presumably two different ways that they tried to get DNA. The first was by the handle of a door. And when they swabbed it, what they found was that there was actually multiple DNA fingerprints on it. So they couldn't identify it positively. But then investigators sat around his house and rifled through his trash And according to reports, they actually took a tissue and were able to get a DNA sample from that tissue. They tested it in the lab, and sure enough, it was a perfect match. They had found their Golden State Killer. Investigators in California say DNA evidence led them to one of the country's most notorious serial killers. Former police officer Joseph James D'Angelo was arrested yesterday. He's believed to be the so-called Golden State Killer. That elusive predator is accused of at least 50 rapes and 12 murders crimes that terrorized California back in the 1970s and 80s. We found the needle in the haystack, and it was right here in Sacramento. We started some surveillance. We were able to get some discarded DNA, and we were able to confirm what we thought we already knew, that we had our man. So solving a case through genetic genealogy is, as you mentioned, something we see pretty regularly now. It's become one of the more common ways that we see cold cases or or cases that have gone on for decades being solved. But I know I hadn't heard much about it being used as an investigative tool prior to the arrest of the Golden State Killer. Was this a brand new approach at the time? So according to everything that I have heard, The Golden State Killer case was exceptional in the fact that it was the first instance where they used genetic genealogy to identify their suspect. Like you said, since that point in time, they have used it to identify a number of other people. But this was the case that loomed largest in almost everyone's imagination in California. So it makes sense that they would pull out all the stops in order to try to figure it out. What crimes is D'Angelo then ultimately charged with and where does his case go from there? In total, Joseph D'Angelo was charged with 13 counts of murder and 13 counts of kidnapping with robbery. This included crimes in six different counties, Contra Costa, Tulare, Sacramento, Santa Barbara, Ventura, and Orange County. But this is not the extent of his crimes. These are only the crimes that he could be charged with at the time because the statute of limitations had passed for many of the others. And I imagine that that has to be a source of frustration for a lot of folks in California, most notably the surviving victims of some of those crimes that he hasn't been charged with. Oh, for sure. And we heard this from victims during the proceedings during uh, D'Angelo's trial. They are happy to know that he is behind bars for the rest of his life, but certainly they would have liked to see him able to be charged with more. The fact of the matter, though, is that until very recently, the statute of limitations for sexual assaults expired after just a few years. And that is the same thing for robberies. Um, burglaries, robberies. 
there were many more people who were victims of D'Angelo's crimes. And there were probably many more people that we'll never know about because they never even reported these crimes. We know that D'Angelo committed at least 50 sexual assaults over the course of his crime spree and dozens of other burglaries and robberies. But because the statute of limitations had passed, he couldn't actually be charged with any of those. This past August, then, D'Angelo was finally given his sentence. What was that sentence and, and where is he now? Well, he pleaded guilty to all of the charges against him. So that was 13 counts of murder and 13 counts of kidnapping and robbery. And he received a life sentence for each one of those. So he is serving 26 consecutive life sentences. Currently, he's at Corcoran State Prison, which is in the Central Valley of California, just south of Visalia. Um, and he was previously at North Kern. And before that, he was at Sacramento uh, County uh, Sacramento County Jail. Something Madison Wade brought up when I spoke with her yesterday about this was that many of the survivors of the Golden State Killer have decided to take their stories public for a whole number of reasons, but but among them wanting to expose the brutality of what this person did to them, but but also to speak to their resilience and the ways they've been able to to move on and, and live lives apart from that. And they actually had an opportunity to say all of this to D'Angelo's face at his sentencing hearing this past summer. Tell me about that emotional day in court. That day in court was a very powerful one for all of the victims of Joseph D'Angelo. They were able to finally give voice to what they'd been holding inside for some of them decades. And a lot of them probably never thought that they would see this day after all. It had been from 1974 to 2020 now when he's finally in court getting his uh, justice. And they came equipped with years and years of what they had held inside. And this was finally their moment to release it. I'll start by saying that impact, it doesn't go away. We live with it. It moves in and out of the blind spots the rearview mirror of our lives going forward. And it's always there. They spoke of the horrendous crimes. They spoke of the loss of innocence that was caused. And really, they gave voice to what the larger community was feeling. Um, even if you weren't a direct victim of Joseph D'Angelo, you had still been victimized because the entire area had been under this heavy cloud of fear for all of these decades. This person always remained at large. And while he might not currently have been committing crimes, the fear was still there. You know, we have to point out that the East Area Rapist caused the Sacramento area to absolutely lose its innocence. Mm -hmm. People started finding ways to protect themselves and their families. So you were on your toes quite a bit. Up to that time, a lot of folks still left their keys in the car. They still left their, their doors unlocked. People didn't lock their doors in those days. And um, my dad came and put a big two-by-four board in, in my garage door so you can't enter from the backyard. And every time I locked that garage, every single day, all these years, I've thought of it. So some of the victims said that they weren't afraid anymore. And they confronted Joseph D'Angelo and they wanted him to understand that he no longer had power over them. This was their moment. I will not devote any more words or thoughts to a worthless scum that could do such despicable things. I'm moving forward. One of the women even made fun of Joseph D'Angelo. She uh, made this motion 
that indicated that Joseph D'Angelo had a small penis and the court <laughs> erupted in laughter. And it was this cathartic moment for everybody. They finally were able to say like, we are no longer under your power. We're no longer under your influence. Mm. And it was moments like that, that really brought the community of victims together, but also the community at large to really find a moment of release. I've watched a number of these statements myself. They're on ABC 10's website, or many of them are. And while every one of these women has a uniquely moving story, and I don't want to conflate them all and, and say that they you know, all, all said the same thing, because that's certainly not the case. But one of the common threads that I found really powerful was many of them saying in different ways, essentially, that this guy doesn't get to have the last word. That what he did to them may have changed their lives forever, but it doesn't define them. It doesn't define the lives that he took either. Whether you understand or acknowledge the depth of your depravity, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that you will spend the rest of your life in prison, and I survive. I'm a survivor who became very resilient and a very, very fortunate human being. And that's a powerful message for the public to hear, and I'm sure for other survivors of violent crime out there to hear as well. Undoubtedly. Um, and there was this moment where they knew that the horror that they had lived through for all those years was finally over. So it was just this collective release that everybody got that day. You mentioned, I think the phrase you used was that there was this cloud of fear over California for a long time while the Golden State Killer was on the loose. How do you think that this entire saga of the Golden State Killer most significantly impacted how people in California and even around the country view personal safety in relationship to the world around us? Yeah, this is something that um, this is something that I've heard about on and off for years as I've looked into this case. And this was before Joseph D'Angelo was finally identified and then brought to justice. And one thing that I heard over and over was you have to go back in time and understand what life was like in the seventies and eighties. It really was a time of innocence for a lot of people. A lot of people went to bed and they didn't lock their doors. They left their windows open in the summertime. It was just a different world at that point in time. And this crime spree is really what shifted that perspective for a lot of people. Because these things were happening so randomly throughout California, people thought they could be next. They thought tonight might be their night where they became victims. Women across California started to feel like they weren't safe anywhere. And they were reinforced because they would hear about another crime and another crime, another crime. And sometimes this was happening, you know, to the neighbor next door. This instance just happened to destroy your sense of innocence. You can imagine what that would be like. Little girls were waking up to see a grown man standing outside their window. You can only imagine what that does to your psyche. Well, it was also the time that because of that, people started shutting their doors and windows, locking them real tight. There was also this great run on home alarms. I was even told that it was the time people started purchasing air conditioners because now they couldn't get that cool night breeze that would come through in the summertime. They had to have everything locked down tight. So that is what Joseph D'Angelo was able to do to an entire state. It's hard to overemphasize just how profound that effect was. 
There are still so many unanswered questions hanging out there, and, and many of them, I'm sure, we'll never know the answers to. But I'm curious, as someone who knows this story pretty intimately and has covered it, what is the one question you'd most want to hear the answer to? I think the question that stands out in my mind is, what possessed Joseph D'Angelo to think that he could get away with it? And by all accounts, he did for a very long period of time. But what has to be going on inside a person to think that they could do this to so many other human beings and be able to evade authorities for that long? Most of us would at least have the humility to think that at some point we're going to get caught. But this guy seemed to have almost a, a God complex. And I really would love someone to be able to sink their teeth into that and psychoanalyze him one day. Well, Mike Duffy, anchor and reporter with ABC 10 in Sacramento, California. Thank you for joining me to talk about this. Thank you, Reed. Thanks to you for joining us once again on The Daily Crime. We're here five days a week, Monday through Friday. So make sure you subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening right now. And if you have a few seconds and you want to help out the show, drop us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, for Vault Studios, I'm Reed Redmond.